Just two days ago, we celebrated a national holiday called Thanksgiving. And our nation is supposed to be in a season of Thanksgiving now, in which we remember the great national blessings that we have, and we thank God for them during this season. But do we? Are we truly thankful for them? You know, some years ago, uh, I recall seeing a supermarket ad, and it just struck me as being very different. This was a very nice ad. It was for a, a supermarket that featured um, uh, uh, families around a table telling what things they were thankful for. And one person was very hard, I, I'm thankful for my family. And another said, I'm thankful for the food, and I'm thankful for this and thankful for that. Very heartfelt um, wonderful commercial that they did, but they were just thankful, not to God, not to anyone else, but to be truly thankful, you need to be thankful to someone, to someone that gave you that. The people in the commercial didn't mention God, they were just vaguely thankful. They're presented as having the emotional, the emotion of thanksgiving, of thankfulness, but without the outcome of it being thankful to someone. It's really politically incorrect to mention being thankful to God in public or, um, or really almost in private anymore to think, oh, we're very thankful to God for this or thankful to God uh, for that. Too many people would be offended if you said that, and certainly if you did it on national television or in a commercial. Why is that? Are we a nation that is truly thankful to God? Well, not really anymore, it seems. And what would be the outcome of such an attitude, and what can we do about it in our own lives? Do, are we affected by this in any way, the whole attitude of not being thankful to God within our society? Let's talk some today about the importance of thankfulness. The importance of thankfulness. First point Here's what President uh, Obama proclaimed five, just five days ago, and every president gives a proclamation of thanksgiving, I think, since uh, Abraham Lincoln. It was made a law then, and that was a tradition of doing it before then, but after, uh, from the time of Lincoln forward, proclamations were given. Let's read this. It says, it's very nice. Now, therefore, I, Barack Obama, President of the United States of America, by virtue of the authority invested in me by the Constitution and the laws of the United States, do hereby proclaim Thursday, November 28, 2013, as a national day of thanksgiving. I encourage the people of the United States to join together, whether in our homes, our places of worship, community centers, or any place of fellowship for friends and neighbors to give thanks for all we have received in the past year. Express appreciation to those whose lives enrich our own and share our bounty with others. Now, witness thereof, I have given, set my hand, and so forth, and this is the proclamation that he made. Very nice proclamation, but did you notice something different about it? Well, you might not unless you compared it to many of the previous proclamations that had been given. Unlike presidents of the past, our president made no mention of God in his official proclamation. Remember, I said, and give thanks for all that we have received during the past year. But we'll read some of the other ones that we've had in the past in just a moment. 
He did. I do want to mention that he did mention in his um, comments leading up to the proclamation that our nation had a tradition of giving thanks to God. He did mention that. And, of course, that's a statement of fact. But the proclamation itself excluded any mention of God. Here's one from Abraham Lincoln. The nation used to be thankful to God and said so. Here's just a few. Abraham Lincoln said this, and I'm excerpting portions of this. It has seemed to me fit and proper that they should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged, talking about our blessings, as with one heart and with one voice and by the whole American people to therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States and also those who are at sea and those who are sojourning in foreign lands to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwells in the heavens. That was the first one that was given as part of the national law for that. Let's read a few more here. And and I'm just pulling out at, at random just a number of them because one is issued every year since then. President Franklin D. Roosevelt, 1936, uh, uh, Thanksgiving Proclamation. Coupled with our grateful acknowledgement of the blessings it has been our high privilege to enjoy, we have a deepening sense of solemn responsibility to assure for ourselves and our descendants a future more abundant in faith and security. This is 1936 in the depth of the Great Depression. Let us, therefore, on Thanksgiving Day, appoint each in his own, appointed each in his own way, but together as a whole people make due expression of our thanksgiving and humbly endeavor to follow in the footsteps of Almighty God. President of the United States said that in 1936. Let's just hop forward um, a couple of decades here to a few decades to President John F. Kennedy, 1963 Thanksgiving Proclamation. On that day, let us gather in sanctuaries dedicated to worship and in homes blessed by family affection to express our gratitude for the glorious gifts of God. And let us earnestly and humbly pray that he will continue to guide and sustain us and the great unfinished tasks of achieving peace, justice, and understanding among all men and nations and of ending misery and suffering wherever they exist. But mentioning God and the source of our blessings and giving thanks to God and looking to God. Here's President Ronald Reagan, 1985 Thanksgiving Proclamation. Although the time and date of the first American Thanksgiving observance may be uncertain, and that is historically uh, correct. I mean, it goes back to the pilgrims, but then there were other things that happened as well. There is no question that this treasured custom derives from our Judeo-Christian heritage. Unto thee, O God, we give thanks, the psalmist sang, praising God not only for the wondrous works of his creation, but for the loving guidance and deliverance from dangers. Let us thank God for our families, friends, and neighbors for the joy of this very festive, uh, very festival season we celebrate in his name. Wow. Can you imagine a president saying that today? That would, that would be wailing and gnashing of teeth throughout the country, I think, if he did that. Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton. Just a couple of them here from uh, Bill Clinton. 
um, I want to go through his this pretty quickly, but uh, let us now on Thanksgiving Day and so forth, um, the world's first constitutional democracy on the foundation of trust and thanks to God out of our right and proper rejoicing on Thanksgiving Day. Let us give our own thanks to God and reaffirm our love of family, neighbor, and community, and so forth. Bill Clinton said that. And then again, in, that was 1996, 1999, he said, I encourage all people of the United States to assemble in their homes, places of worship, or community centers to share a spirit of fellowship and prayer and to reinforce the ties of family and community to express heartfelt thanks to God for his many blessings he has bestowed upon us. George W. Bush, 2001, very similar. Always have reason and hope to trust in God despite great adversity. He references the pilgrims giving thanks to God. God, God, God is mentioned over and over by these presidents. But up until uh, current times, I'm afraid that has changed. It is absent from the proclamation today. So what's the state of thanksgiving in America today? Well, the courts are banning displays of the Ten Commandments. We all know that. Prayers are banned in schools. They banned creches on the public squares. It's okay with me. I don't mind that so much. But they allow Santa Claus, Easter bunnies, Halloween, ancient pagan symbols in the schools, everything. The kids are even required to do some of these things. They're changing the definition of marriage from a biblical definition to a secular definition. And God we trust is the subject of lawsuits. It seems that all there seems to be war on expression of religion everywhere that you see it. If you, you call the word laicism, you don't hear it very much. Uh, it comes from a, a French word, laicite. They have this policy in France where religion is essentially banned in the public, um, in public places, in public life. Um, in France, you can only wear a, a little a cross about this high or something. If it's this high, it's illegal. You can't have Muslim symbols, anything else. You shouldn't do these things in public or in your workplace. And laicism is on the growth in the United States. People say they need freedom from religion. Well, what does that mean? That means that you cannot express faith in public. You should not mention God in public. It's bad form to do that. And for a politician, can even be very serious uh, political incorrectness to do that. Radical laicism is on the rise. How does this affect God's view of our nation? What do you think? Are we thankful in his eyes? Are we a thankful nation in his eyes? Are we in God's church being affected by the increased secularization of society in this respect? I always love a, a wrong question, you know, because it helps you sort things out sometimes. Have you ever heard someone say when you say, well, you know, they're doing away with this law and that, and they say, well, can you legislate morality? Do you think we can legislate morality? You ever had to confront that question? How do you answer that? Do you think we can legislate morality? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I always say question the question. Don't answer a fool according to his folly. Let me, let me just help you sort this out so we'll have a, be able to think about this. Morality 
It's what we as individuals in society think is right and wrong. That's basically what morality is. For instance, if as a society we think that it's wrong to endanger people's lives by running red lights at high speed, what do we do? Pass a law against it. Well, that's wrong to run red lights. And if you say, well, I need a, need a ride to the mall, there's somebody's car, I think I'll take it. And you get in their car and you drive off with it. Well, we think that's wrong. You've taken someone else's property. It's wrong to do that. So we call that grand theft auto. We don't do that, do we? Not something that we should do. So in an important sense, all laws legislate morality in one way or another. It's not a question of whether our laws will legislate morality. It's whose morality are we going to legislate? That's the real question that society faced. And in the past, that morality had been a Judeo-Christian ethic based on the Bible. People's sense of right and wrong came from biblical origins, from a Judeo-Christian origin. But now these things are being rejected more and more. It's what we call the culture wars. The latest battle in the culture wars has been over marriage. Biblical marriage versus secular marriage. Guess which one is winning in this nation today? The founding fathers of the nation lived by a Judeo-Christian morality and even based the idea of our freedoms on divine law. They said, so they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights? Oh, well, that settles it then. God said it. We believe it. That's what they thought. No question about it. Our laws are based essentially on a Judeo-Christian ethic. But what happens when you take that foundation away? That's the foundation. That's what it rises out. I want to get too technical, but it's called a pre-political ethic. It's the sense of right and wrong from which political action grows out of. And it was based on this in the past for centuries. And now that foundation is not only being eroded, but completely shifted and changing. And they're building on a new foundation. And if you build on a different foundation, you will get a different structure. Now the judges are saying that the morality on which we base our laws must be exclusively a philosophical morality, excluding the Judeo-Christian morality we once based things on. They say we must exclude God from our knowledge of right and wrong. You must. It's constitutional. It wasn't constitutional in the past that you had to do that. It's, this is novel. This is recent. This is a new development. We always acknowledged that it, we had a Judeo-Christian foundation. That's why the Ten Commandments are in motive or in some place somehow represented on the Supreme Court building, I think in a, maybe a dozen places or mo more. That's because that's always been understood by um, legal theorists as being the foundation of our laws. But if you assert a Judeo-Christian opinion about right and wrong, they ask, can you legislate morality? You're putting your morality out. What they're really meaning is 
You can't use your biblical morality, your biblically-based morality that we used for centuries, that our nation prospered under for so long. That is changing very rapidly. Dr. Meredith talks about this all the time. One of the main things that we do and write about is point this out. We're not involved in the politics of it. We're showing where the nation is going, lifting up a voice like a trumpet to tell the nation his sins. They can get away with this now because the country is more and more secular and less and less religious. But in earlier times, such things as changing the definition of marriage would have caused outrage, outrage across the country. But no real outrage now or very little of it. It's democracy in action. It's the will of the people that's being expressed in our laws. It's the spiritual nature of the people being expressed in our laws. Will God allow this to go on forever? Or will he allow trials to come upon an unthankful nation? Times have changed. Times have changed very much. Just to summarize this point, our nation is becoming increasingly secular and rejecting God in its knowledge of, in its knowledge of right and wrong. It's because a nation is rejecting God in its private life as well. So how did all this come about? Second point, how did it all come about? Well, we have great blessings, and we started with that. Long ago, a man lived in the Middle East, and God called his friend, and he was a man of faith, and because he believed God, he obeyed God. And so God made promises to him, great promises, both physical and spiritual promises. We'll just look at some of these today, mostly the physical promises that he made. Genesis 22 Verses 16 through 19, Genesis 22, verses 16 through 19. And he said, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, Blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies. In your seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. He made a great promise to Abraham in this time. And then he passed that on. Just look over a page or two to Genesis 26, verses 2 through 5. Speaking of Isaac, God said the same thing. He gave them a promise. His first is conditional. And then when they fulfilled the condition, it became unconditional, that he would do these things for his people. So Abraham fulfilled it, and then he offered it and passed it along to Isaac. Then the Lord appeared to him, referring to Isaac, and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I, will, I shall tell you, dwell in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For you and your descendants I will give these lands and perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. I will make your descendants multiply as stars of the heaven, and so forth. And, but listen to what he said. He said, I will give your descendants all these lands, and your, and your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, verse 5, because... Why? Abraham 
obeyed my voice and kept my charge and my commandments, my statutes and my laws. He did it because Abraham obeyed an ancient promise thousands of years ago. He said that he would fulfill, and he has done so. God clearly gave great birthright promises, and we believe for many reasons that the United States and um, uh, British Commonwealth nations are the recipients of those promises. But they are not always there. They can be taken away, and he said that he would um, give them either blessings or cursings, depending on how they obeyed. Just to summarize that point, we have our national blessings because of God's faithfulness to an ancient promise. But it doesn't have to stay that way forever. He can fulfill them another way. Point three, where our national blessings do not come from. Never wondered about that. A lot of people think our national blessings come from a place that they do not come from. Deuteronomy 8, 6 through 18. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 6 through 18. Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in all his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs that flow out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of which whose hills you can dig copper. These are industrial materials pre-industrial society, but he's promising them industrial materials from which they can build a great society, a great nation. Verse 10, when you have eaten and are full, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I have commanded you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses to dwell in, Yeah, I can relate to that. Boy, I ate and was full on Thursday. We had family in, and we rejoiced in our home and rejoiced in our family, and we rejoiced over these things that God had given us. And he said this would happen. He would give us these things in accordance with that promise. When your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold are multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up, And you forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Verse 17. Then you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gained me this wealth. And you shall remember that the Lord your God, for it is he that gives you the power to get wealth, that he may establish the covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. Why does he do it? For say, he gives us the power to get wealth. You could work and work and work and have nothing. There are many societies in this world, I've been around, and they work hard, difficult, long days, but the productivity isn't there, and they don't have much national wealth. Why does he give us this power to get wealth? That he may establish his covenant, 
which he swore to your fathers as to this day. It's not us, brethren. It's not us. How many Americans observe Thanksgiving with the acknowledgement that it is God who made it all possible? Even fewer acknowledge that it's his promise to Abraham. We did that at my house. Over Thanksgiving dinner, everybody gathered around the table with some extension, extension on it and with all of the people down there. I, Marcia was so far away, I pulled out my cell phone and said I was going to have to call her if I needed the salt, you know. It was great. What a wonderful blessing we had. But we acknowledged and thanked God for his faithfulness to our father Abraham, not just for ourselves but for our whole nation. Could God take these blessings away? Deuteronomy 8, 19 through 20. Deuteronomy 8, 19 through 20. Then it shall be, if you by any means forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish as the nations which the Lord destroys before you, so you shall perish because you would not be obedient to the voice of the Lord your God. We are not, is this an obedient nation? Well, we can't say that they always were, but they certainly based their laws and their customs and many things. Even our presidents would pray and say, give thanks to God for this, even though they did not know him as we do. He will take those things away. Just some statistics to give you an an idea of things, that the average person in the United States, their output per hour is a little over $60 per hour. That's the gross national product or productivity per person, a little bit over 62, 63, I forget exactly what, in this nation. Some people a lot more, some people a lot less. But in other nations, it's not the same. I just looked up a few others. It is in Argentina, it's about $20, a little over 20 and in Brazil it's half that. Productivity, the power to create, to get wealth, to create it. We have it because we create it, but it is God who gives us this great productivity that enables us to do so many things and to have so many things. God can take those blessings away. Does God think that we do this because we are a superior people or a superior culture? He kind of takes us down a peg in his word. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 6. Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verse 6. Therefore understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. You're a stiff-necked people. He says, we're not giving you this because you're so great and wonderful and smart and righteous and good and everything else. He says, you've really got your problem. I've always wondered about that stiff-necked people thing. I, exactly what, did, what was he talking about when he said it? I can imagine a, a person with a stiff neck being like this. But really, I, a stiff neck, a person would, when your neck is stiff, you hold your head up, doesn't it? Can you imagine who do you, here's this, I do this really well, don't I? 
I, I really wonder if maybe that's what he was thinking when he was talking about a stiff-necked people. I also want to mention power and wealth are relative. This is my just my personal theory about it, but I think U.S. power and U.S. wealth, some of the largest contributors to that have been Joseph Stalin and Mao Zedong. You want to know why? The greatest contributors to our dominance in many respects have been them because they choked the economic power of hundreds of millions of people, enabling the U.S. to be relatively stronger and more prosperous. Power and wealth are relative especially power, military power, is relative. All this is changing. All this is changing. Sometimes people say, well, how can, how can you know, the Europe, you know, uh, grow in, beyond the United States in power and wealth? So it doesn't have to grow beyond us. God can take us down, change it that way, go from this to this. And that can happen very quickly, and especially in the context of current events these days. So just to summarize some of the things we need to remember if we are to be able to give thanks all year round and have truly thankful hearts towards God. Nationally, it is God who gives us the ability to get wealth, to make our labors productive. It is not our own strength. Lots of people, lots of nations work harder than we do. God can take this away. Our national blessings come from God because of ancient promises that he made. God is faithful to keep these promises, and so should we be. Much of our reputation, or perception rather, of wealth is relative to what other individuals and nations have. And our own trials and recoveries can enable us to be more thankful as a nation. You know, we are a lot more thankful for prosperity after we've been through a period of recession. Remembering these things, we should give thanks to God for our national blessings on behalf of our nation. On behalf of our nation. All year round, we should do it. Our nation moves farther and farther away from God and takes much for granted. We live in an unthankful nation. Let's be a thankful church. Thankful to God. Second Timothy chapter 3. Verses 1 through 4. Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Tell me if this sounds familiar. But know this, that in the last days, that is our time, the days before the end of this age, perilous times will come. The times will become perilous, and here's why. For, because... Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Boy, does that sound familiar. You can just about describe our national scene with those words very accurately. So where is our unthankful nation heading? God knows, but do we? Well, yes, we do, because we believe God. I'll just read briefly Jeremiah 30, chapter, uh, chapter 30 and verse 7. Jeremiah 30 and verse 7. He says, 
Alas, for that day is great and none is like it. It is the time of Jacob's trouble. But he shall be saved out of it. The inheritance, the birthright inheritance that we enjoy is going to go into a tremendous trouble as a result of the nation's sins. But he said he will save the nation out of it ultimately. But after great trial. All the things that Dr. Meredith has been warning the U.S. and Britain would come about, uh, could have come about in, in the context of current events and so forth. We've been watching these things for a long time and watching them add up, but never so much so, or so many things in place in the, uh, as comprehensively as they have been in the last years. And one of the things that we do in the Tomorrow's World program and the Tomorrow's World magazine is that we put current events in this context, the context of what God said is going to happen, and we lift up our voice like a trumpet and tell the people their sins and say, look, this is what's going on. And they will know that they've been told about this at some point. So to summarize that point, our blessings have come from God and not from our own superiority. And God can take them away from an unthankful people. Point number four. Our nation has forgotten where its blessings come from, but we must not. True thanks for giving, it comes from a heartfelt gratitude. It is a strong emotion, or it's driven by the strong emotion. It's a feeling. And it can vary with circumstances. Uh, for instance, When's the last time you gave thanks for your good health? I mean, I know there may be people here that are, are not feeling as well, or particularly if you're older, you haven't had some difficulties. But, you know, I, I haven't, you know, been, been sick all year, and do I give thanks for that so far? How about you? You ought to know what will make you thankful if you're feeling good and your health has been good? A nice case of the Mack truck flu. That'll do it. You know what the Mack truck flu is? That's the one you where you think you got run over by a Mack truck when you get it. After you get over that, you'll say, boy, thank you, Lord. I feel so much better. I'm so glad to feel good now. Thank you for my better health. If everything always goes great, we don't feel the differential between famine and feast. No one appreciates a good meal like a hungry man. Travel can help us to appreciate our blessings, and I always uh, encourage the brethren to travel internationally to the various places. Life is very different for many of the other brethren, and it's nice to be able to find that out. We can appreciate who they are and how they live in other places. Recession can help us uh, appreciate recovery and prosperity. When's the last time you thank God for your paycheck? Been it lately? You want to know what will make you thank God for your paycheck? Six months of unemployment. That will do it every time. You get that first paycheck. Thank you, God. Thank you for my paycheck. feels so good to, you know, to be back in the economy again and to be recovering. I mean, all the things you, you can thank God for. How about the little things? I've been mentioning big ones. I, I don't want to get too personal here. But you know what I was thankful for a little while back? It was hot water. This is going back probably a year ago, but guess what happened on Friday? The hot water heater went out. I hate cold showers. And when first of the week, when I finally got that thing fixed, I was thanking God for hot water. 
When's the last time you thank God for the roof over your head? I do that because 40 years in Florida, I've been through a lot of hurricanes in the eye of, I guess, three of them. We've seen damage to our house. And I know the feeling when you've got, you're worried whether your roof is going to hold up under stress. And after we got our roof all fixed and a whole new roof put on the house, I've really felt thankful. I've just felt good about it. I had never thanked God for my roof before. It's just something I never appreciated as I should have. You know, you're thankful for your heat. You got so your house warm this morning when you got up. And was you're thankful for that. We have great national blessings, not just physical resources as well. We have political and religious freedoms. Reforms are possible. I know the politics seems crazy, but we have a very stable political system in this country. Go some other places and you'll see what it's like. Tyranny. People say, oh, the president's tyrannical. No, he's not. He's not. You want tyranny? I can send you to some places where they have tyranny. I don't want to. I don't want you to go there. But I'm telling you, they're out there. We, we could have tyranny in this country and may in the future. But there are places where there is real tyranny in this world today, comparative to what we have. This is a blessing that we have the stable system that we have, a stable legal system. You know, I, I know we, we say bad things about our judges and everything, but a lot of places, the judges are political appointees. They make things up as they go. You never know what the outcome of a trial is going to be or of litigation. They have an unstable legal system. Upward mobility. You know, you can start poor in this country and wind up pretty rich, and a lot of people have done it. You can start rich and <laughs> wind up poor as well. Are we truly thankful as a nation? Is it possible that God will give us national trials because of that? All these things combined with a land full of resources and resourceful people and God's blessing have created great national wealth and worker productivity. Not coincidentally, these things have enabled God's work to vastly increase in these times. Probably why he's doing it here, because we have the resources to do it. You want to know one great way to avoid trials? Don't need them. Don't need them. A great way to avoid, or perhaps sometimes to avoid, um, uh, Deprivation is to constantly give thanks to God for the blessings that he gives. And maybe he'll keep giving them. Maybe he won't think we need a trial to make us thankful for what he's doing. So to summarize this point, we in God's church must remember where our national blessings come from and where our personal blessings come from. Because God may take them away. That could happen. One of the best things about giving thanks without ceasing is that it's a pleasant thing to do. God commands us to do this. Have you ever devoted your prayer time to just giving thanks? You ever tried that? That's a good thing to do. I mean, we have things that we normally pray for, and maybe we have a certain way that we pray every day. But have you ever just stopped and said, well, I'm going to have all of my prayer time today going down this long list granular, long, detailed list of things that I am thankful for. You know, it's really a good thing to do, especially when you're sad, because being thankful makes you happy. It's good for you. 
It puts you in a happy, positive state of mind. We're thinking about blessings when we do it. It gives us feelings of satisfaction and joy when we do it. It's a good thing to just give thanks to God. Let's look at some of the things that God says about our thankfulness. 2 Corinthians 4, 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 15. Thankful people are usually a happy people. Now, for all things, uh, for all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Happiness causes thanksgiving, but you know, thanksgiving also causes happiness. Pleasant things are associated with giving thanks. Enumerating blessings is pleasant work to do. And if you're down and you're sad and you're not feeling good and you're having negative thoughts, sometimes just devote your prayer to giving thanks to God, to every last little thing, your roof, your, you know, the, what's in the pantry, your new pair of shoes, to the, the flowers in the garden, to the, and the big things as well to your friendships, the good things that happened at work, your last paycheck, just everything that God pours out upon you. So here's some things I hope we can remember as we go through the coming year. God accepts our thanksgiving and even commands it. It helps us to understand our relationship with God as our true provider. We understand our relationship better to God when we give thanks. God wants us to remember that it's he who blesses our labor both individually and nationally. We aren't doing these things on our own strength, and we shouldn't be proud when we succeed. Things can change. Things can change when God wants to correct us. Knowing these things enables us to be truly thankful because our blessings are gifts. Giving thanks is just a statement of truth, and God is a God of truth. We should give thanks for his faithfulness to Abraham. We benefit greatly from it. We are the inheritors of great promises, and the greatest is yet to come. For such things we should give thanks throughout the year, not just as Thanksgiving. And every person here is an inheritor and the seed of Abraham. Every person here and even those outside enjoy the blessings of this land, the blessings that he promised to Abraham. Even when we have trials, they serve to illuminate our blessings and help us to sincerely give thanks. No one appreciates a good meal more than a hungry man. Please consider that a thankful person just might have fewer trials than they would have had if they were not thankful. One of the best ways to avoid a trial is, what? Don't need it. Don't need it. Giving thanks is a pleasant experience, both for us and for God. Do it often, do it in detail. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, the Apostle Paul instructed, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things, the details, 
all the details, all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's give thanks from the heart throughout the year, remembering the source of our blessings.